0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink air, we'll talk with a gastroenterologist for what you need to know about screening for colon cancer.
1: If you have your procedure and you have no polyps, we'll tell you you have no polyps. If you have a procedure and you have polyps, say, hey, you know, you had polyps, we're gonna send the polyps removed from the lining of your colon to the lab to be analyzed.
0: Then we'll hear about the life-threatening infections that a person may face after recovering from a drug overdose.
1: There
2: is um, infections related to the sharing of needles. If that uh, person they're sharing with has HIV or hepatitis C or hepatitis B, then they'll infect themselves.
0: And we'll learn about the importance of vitamin A, especially in children.
3: The key thing in children is that they are growing and they are more prone to having complications if they have vitamin A deficiency.
0: All that in a selection from our Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about a significant increase in the number of life-threatening infections people are facing as a result of the opioid epidemic. Then we'll learn about the risks of vitamin A deficiency, particularly in children. But first, we'll talk about what we all need to know about screening for colon cancer. When you turn 50, it's time to discuss colon cancer screening options with your physician. And here with me today is Dr. Seku Rollins. He's an assistant professor of internal medicine at Upstate who specializes in gastroenterology. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancers diagnosed in men and women. Isn't that, is that still the case?
1: Absolutely. It's um, the third most common cancer in, in adults.
0: Why do we need the screening?
1: Well, the screening is important because colon cancer remains one of the preventable causes of of, of cancer. So if you think about your lung cancer, your breast cancer, your prostate cancer, uh, those are um, detectable, but they're not preventable in the way that colon cancer is. So the screening is important in terms of saving lives, and we've shown that our uh, screening programs have saved lives, and we've shown that they prolong lives as well. So it's it's just an important um, thing to
0: do. So the screening actually helps you um, catch it, early or before it becomes cancerous, uh, I guess?
1: Both of those things. So you can prevent something from becoming a cancer. And by something, I mean, um, uh, colon polyps, which are the, the source of, of colon cancer. So you can stop them from becoming cancers and catch cancers in an early stage so that they can be uh, managed surgically before they spread.
0: So who needs to be screened? I know 50 is sort of the, um, the age where they say that we need to start being mindful of this. Um, Is it men and women at 50 and up or?
1: So for men and women at average risk for colorectal cancer, screening begins at age 50. But there are certain factors that might increase your risk where we'd start screening earlier. Um, Those factors might include um, family history. If you have a, a parent or a sibling or a child who had colon cancer, we'd begin screening either at age 40 or 10 years younger than that relative had their cancer.
0: So it is a disease that sort of runs in the family. Uh,
1: there is a strong hereditary component. Um, so we, we, when we see people in consultation, we ask the question: Has anyone in your family had colon cancer? Has anyone in your family had other cancers that might fall into uh, familial uh, cancer syndromes that run with colon cancer? Um, uh, for instance, there is if someone has a family history of pancreatic cancer, uh, ovarian, um, breast, endometrial cancer, uh, cancers of the the the, the kidney pelvis are all things that kind of go along with colon cancer. So we don't just ask the question about colon cancer. We ask the question about what, across multiple generations of your family, what other cancers have there been?
0: Now, what about other um, factors? Are there things that increase a person's risk? Or maybe are there things that decrease a person's risk for um, colon cancer?
1: That's, that's a great question. So uh, we say that a personal history of a bowel disease uh, particularly in uh, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis affecting the colon, um, those increase your chance for having uh, colon cancer. People who have uh, diets high in red meat and meat which is cooked at high temperatures increase your chance for having colon cancer. Alternately, people who have uh, diets which are high in fiber um, have a decreased chance. Um, simply having uh, diabetes or other elements of the met- metabolic syndrome increases your chance for making uh, colon polyps. Uh, people with um, Uh, truncal obesity, people who have um, uh, insulin uh, insensitivity along with diabetes also have increased chance of having colon cancer.
0: And then uh, there's things like you mentioned a high fiber diet um, that helps kind of decrease your risk, right? That's correct. So, all right, well, that's good to know. Um, Now, there's a lot of different ways to screen for colon cancer. Uh, I wanted to sort of have you go through all of those and talk about... um, which one might be right for which type of person? Uh,
1: There are two ways to think about um, colon cancer screening. Uh, One is uh, tests which can detect a cancer, and others think about tests that can prevent a cancer. So the the detection tests would include uh, stool tests where we check the stool for microscopic amounts of blood or for cancer DNA. Those are good detection tests. Um, Other detection tests might include Uh, X-ray tests of the colon, such as a barium enema, um, those can also find a cancer fairly uh, reliably, Uh, whereas uh, many patients prefer to prevent a cancer rather than detect it. And the prevention tests uh, would include colonoscopy, uh, sigmoidoscopy, and uh, CT colonography, which is also called virtual colonoscopy.
0: So what are those? What's the difference between those, colonoscopy and... um... Sig- what's a sigmoidoscopy?
1: All right, so a colonoscopy is a test where you pass a camera all the way through someone's entire colon or a lower intestine or a large intestine, whereas a sigmoidoscopy primarily just looks at the, the very end of the left side of somebody's colon. So you're probably wondering, well, what's that good for? If my colon is five or six feet long and I'm looking at the last one foot of it, it means that the, the previous four feet aren't looked at at all, and you'd be right, which is why a sigmoidoscopy has kind of fallen out of vogue in terms of um, screening for uh, colorectal cancer.
0: Okay, so most people would be recommended for colonoscopy if they had a choice between the two?
1: Absolutely. I think that um, sigmoidoscopy is far more common and more um, popular in in countries where uh, non-gastroenterologists are doing the screening. In the United States, for the most part, um, screening endoscopies are performed by gastroenterologists who are highly trained who do thousands and thousands of these tests every single year, as opposed to in, like in Canada, they have uh, nurse practitioners and primary care physicians do sigmoidoscopies fairly frequently, which is why they're utilized in other countries like Canada and Western Europe.
0: So compare for me the colonoscopy and the virtual colonoscopy. Right. What's so, the difference?
1: So the virtual colonoscopy um, is basically a fancy CAT scan where they take hundreds and hundreds of pictures of your your colon and then the computer is able to kind of collate those images into a 3D rendering of your colon. And the pictures are, um, they're fairly impressive. You're able to find large things and small things, uh, but typically they say that um, that test is not responsible for finding anything smaller than six millimeters across. So if you can imagine that there were a polyp which was say three or four or five millimeters, you couldn't reliably find that with the CT colonography which is why the screening interval for that test is every five years as opposed to colonoscopy, which is every 10 years. Further, if you found something on the CT colonography, you'd be on the hook to go have a colonoscopy. So um, it's a good way to show there's nothing there. But once you found something, it uh, necessitates or it kind of uh, it makes necessary uh, a further test.
0: But the virtual colonoscopy, there's not a camera inserted. It's it's just like having a CT scan, right? Or is there?
1: That is correct. There is no camera inserted. However, um, as you would have to do for a colonoscopy, you'd have to take the, the bowel purgative, the cleanse, to clean out the entire colon, which for many people is actually the worst part of a colonoscopy because it's, it's a whole day of not having anything to eat but clear liquids. And then you take this voluminous bowel prep, and then you go in for the test, and they inflate your colon and do a CAT scan. So it's, you, still, you still have to not eat anything, you still have to drink this bowel prep, so it's still somewhat onerous for some patients.
0: Okay, well, that's good to know. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with gastroenterologist Dr. Seku Rollins about colorectal cancer screening. So you go through the uh, colonoscopy and do you find out that same day? Do you get the results quickly or
1: Well, there's some things you will know that very day. So if you have your procedure and you have no polyps, we'll tell you you have no polyps. If you have a procedure and you have polyps we'll say, hey, you know you had polyps, we're going to send, the polyps removed from the lining of your colon to the lab to be analyzed, we will have the results of that in two to three days. And I'll send you uh, a copy of your pathology report so you'll know my thoughts about your polyp and what the strategy for surveillance might be. Some people's polyps don't require any special surveillance. They they need to have their procedure again in 10 years' time. Some people will need to have their procedure again in five years or three years or one year, depending on the, um, the microscopic appearance of that polyp. Um, and all of that's in, in the perfect circumstance in which someone has a perfect bowel prep. You can see every single corner of their colon. Uh, and someone has an imperfect prep, we say, gosh, you know, I really couldn't see everything I wanted to see. I'm going to bring you back sooner. So I'll see you in three months, sir or ma'am, and we'll do this again. But we'll have you drink two days of the purgative to make sure the colon is as clear as possible.
0: So if when you're doing the colonoscopy, if you find a polyp, you're able to remove it right away. Absolutely. But if a person is having a virtual colonoscopy done and a polyp is found, you can't you're not set up to remove it right then, right?
1: You are not. Um so if someone has a virtual colonoscopy and they have a polyp found, then that person will need to be referred to be seen by someone who can do a colonoscopy with polypectomy, um, like myself. Um and will do the colonoscopy. The only downside is that having found a polyp on the CAT scan, if you can't find a polyp in the colonoscopy it leads to understandable anxiety for the patient and frustration for the physician Um, because CAT scans are great tools, but they're not perfect.
0: Okay. Well, let's say that you um, find a polyp and you remove it and you send it to the lab and it comes back. Does it come back either cancerous or not? Is it just one or the other?
1: There's a spectrum of disease. So depending on the appearance under microscope, you can say that uh, there are certain um, uh, cellular or, or nuclear changes that speak to what kind of polyp this is is this hyperplastic is this some kind of proliferation of normal tissue is this an adenoma is this a a cell which is on its way to making a cancer and among the adenomas there are kind of different variations of disease there is a tubular adenoma there's tubular villus adenoma there's villus adenoma and they speak to increasing likelihood to make a cancer so based on that pathology and based on the overall appearance of the colon we can make recommendations about a surveillance interval.
0: Um, But does it mean, did you get the cancer out, though, by taking the polyp out?
1: Right. You take the polyp out, then you're done. That polyp is now in a bucket and no longer can affect you. However, your history has been changed to someone who previously didn't have polyps but now has a history of polyps, and you are at risk more than you were before. So if we say that the average interval for screening was every 10 years, if you had a tubular adenoma in your colon, now your interval screening is 5 years, If you have a tubular villus adenoma, your interval might be one to three years, depending on the size of the polyp and everything else. So um, there are consequences to removing something, even though it can no longer harm you. It means that we know that your biology is that of someone who is likelier to make polyps again in the future.
0: And is that um, time interval based on how quickly they grow? Is that why it's 10 years or 5 years?
1: So we say that there is a larger amount of cellular abnormality in the polyps, which are likeliest to become cancers. So the ones which are the most abnormal, they necessitate quicker return to endoscopy.
0: Okay. Can we talk about the risks involved in colonoscopy?
1: Absolutely. It's an important thing to talk about because um, every test has a different sensitivity and ability to diagnose a a colon cancer. However, the more invasive a test is, the likelier it is to kind of cause harm. So we say that for an average colonoscopy, uh, there is about a one in 1,000 chance that you can have a perforation or cause some kind of bleeding at the time of the colonoscopy.
0: And what do you do to fix that?
1: Right, so if it's a very, very, very small perforation, you can have your patient move from the endoscopy center to the hospital where they can be observed. If they have a significant perforation, they may need to have a surgery to fix the perforation. Um, What we can do at the time of the procedure, if you perceive that someone has had a perforation, you can put uh, little metal clips to kind of um, uh, adhere uh, the 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 hole closed, but if someone has a perforation, then more likely than not, they'll need a surgery to repair that part of their colon.
0: Okay, good, gotcha. Well, this is good information. People just need to remember: at age fifty, this is something to start thinking about and talking about with their doctor. Absolutely. So, my guest has been Dr. Seku Rollins, an assistant professor of internal medicine specializing in gastroenterology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air. Coming up next, life threatening infections related to opioid abuse. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The epidemics of opioid abuse and heroin abuse have killed many people, but using these drugs can also cause a variety of other medical problems. Here to tell about them is Dr. Timothy Indy. He's professor and chair of microbiology and immunology at Upstate and a specialist in infectious diseases. I appreciate you being here. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Amber, for inviting me.
0: So it's not just the risk of overdosing and dying, but there's um, Other complications, right?
2: Absolutely, but let's go over some sobering numbers um, first that I think um, people should be aware of. And we've heard about in the news, you know, about the opioid epidemic and the number of um, deaths associated with that. So, the the Center for Disease Control and Health uh, and Prevention in 2015 reported that there were 52,404 overdose uh, overdose deaths during that year. From 1999 to 2015, the CDC reported 568,699 overdose dose deaths.
0: That's wow.
2: Let's put that in perspective. During the Vietnam War, from 1965 to 1974, there are 47,000 military casualties. So there was almost a 12-fold increase, or you know, in proportional um, deaths from overdose as compared to one of our most brutal wars ever. It's really a sobering, you know, sobering fact when you think about it. Um, according to the New York State uh, OASIS program, they recently released some estimates about what the uh, drug use problem is, is in New York. They came out with a sobering statistic. They, they estimated that about 12% of the population in New York have substance use disorder.
0: 12%. 12%,
2: right. which is incredible. If you think about the eight counties in central New York, um, that includes Cayuga, Cortland, Herkimer, Madison, Oneida, Onondaga, Oswego, and uh, Tompkins County. If you look at the demographics, and it's 12%, that's 95,000 people in our area in central New York with substance use disorder. Um, In Onondaga County itself, in 2016, there was 108 opioid deaths and 71 deaths in 2017. So these are incredibly sobering numbers. And um, if you think about it, it's just um, it's just striking, right? Um, how well uh, how this is affecting our families and our and our loved ones here in Central New York. So the the original question you had was, you know, what are the complications? And appropriately, we focus on the deaths because um, you know that's that's a number that's e- easily tracked sure. as you can see. Uh, the CDC in um, reported from 2016 to 2017. There were 142,557 opioid-involved overdoses with ER visits. So these were ER visits that didn't result in death alone. So it gives you an understanding of the breadth of the problem besides just the deaths alone. And, and the deaths are just the tip of the iceberg, Um, So when we think about it, um, like an iceberg, there's a tip with uh, the fatalities. Then you have the ER visits from overdoses. But then you have the whole population underneath that uh, with infections related to uh, IV drug use. So when we think about that, there are really two components to this. Um, There is um, infections related to the sharing of needles. So when a a heroin user or injection user uh, shares a needle with someone, they, they actually share part of the blood and inject it themselves. If that uh, person they're sharing with has HIV or hepatitis C or hepatitis B, then they'll infect themselves. So that's one aspect of the um, infections you can get.
0: That's a, from a dirty needle.
2: From a dirty needle. Um, you know, the in Onondaga County um, in central New York, there are clean needle exchanges um, that uh, drug users can use. Um, so that they can go in, exchange needles, use a clean needle. So that has done a lot in reducing those types of infections. Okay. But everyone realizes, and I think everyone has had a visit to the doctor where they went to the phlebotomist and had their blood drawn. Mm-hmm. And you remember the, the details that they go through. They, they cleanse the skin several times with a sterile pad. They make sure that the site is sterile before they insert the needle in. And that's because a needle inserted through a non-sterile site can induce bacteria into the bloodstream. And that's really the underbelly and the problem that we're seeing um, related to IV drug use, is those bacteria then spread through the bloodstream. They cause uh, infections at the site, a skin abscess. They can result in an infection within muscles and skin called a necrotizing fasciitis, which can be severe enough to result in amputation or death. The bacteria can proliferate and then seed onto the heart valves, uh, a condition which we call bacterial endocarditis. And the bacteria will actually form a large, um, what we call a vegetation on the valve requiring removal or they'll die. They can break off and go into the lungs causing an abscess. The bacteria can also lodge into the spine and proliferate causing a spinal abscess that will result in a bone infection, but also paralysis.
0: These all things that you're describing sound like medical emergencies.
2: They are truly amer- uh, medical emergencies. And the problem with um, um, addiction and, and heroin use, um, they don't realize that they are as sick as they are until they are very, very ill. So they come in the emergency room uh, in sepsis uh, with bacterial you know, infections that are very, very severe. So they are really at the far end of the spectrum. So this, this is the underbelly that we don't really talk about that the public should be aware of. So what are the numbers? So um, in, um, if we look at the serious infection in heart valves called endocarditis, um, there are five reported in Syracuse in 2011. This has increased to 37 this past year. In our wow. own my own personal experience and what we have seen in the Infectious Disease Service, Uh, we have seen as many as 19 kids at University Hospital. Um, Just yesterday, I got a report that there are 17 uh, kids there. We also cover Krauss Hospital, and there's three to four there. Um, There are numbers of of, um, young adults with the same problem at St. Joe's. And if you think about a 20-year-old who comes in with this type of serious disease, so we've recently had a, a patient who had two heart valves that needed to be replaced. I mean, a heart valve in a 20-year-old requires lifelong medical therapy. There's a half-life to heart valve, so they'll have to be replaced in 10 to 15 years. I mean, these are just serious medical problems.
0: So it's a lifelong repercussion. Absolutely. Wow. So, what is done for um, these younger patients that come in with bacterial endocarditis? What, can you can do you necessarily have to replace the valve, or can it be treated with medicine? Or
2: if it's early, it can be treated with antibiotics, and we're talking about a six to eight week course of IV antibiotics. Um, the problem is that we we do it through a special line, um, an intravenous line called a PICC line that can be um, stay in place for up to several months. But the problem with, um, uh, with addiction and um, opioid users is th- that they are not capable of going home with these things because of the potential of using it Misuse. for... So they end up staying in the hospital for eight weeks.
0: Holy cow. How mm-hmm. much does... Th- that's got to cost a lot to keep someone in the hospital for eight weeks.
2: So we're talking probably on average between two to $300,000 for a hospital stay, wow. including antibiotics. And if they require a heart valve replaced, then that's, um, that's a lot. You know, there really is uh, no reporting mechanism for this, so the CDC doesn't track these types of infections. There's no reporting mechanism in um, central New York to record this. So we really don't know what the incidence rates are in um, IV drug users for this. There have only been a a couple of of studies that have done. They've been very small. For example, in 2010, in the American Journal of Drug Alcohol Abuse, uh, a Colorado study, followed uh, 51 heroin users over time, and they found that 55% reported a skin infection at some point in time during their drug use. 29% uh, reported a serious bacterial infection. So if we think about that, and we think about the 95,000 potential uh, people with substance use disorder in our county, many of them which are uh, IV drug users, we're talking about a huge number that will have uh, bacterial infections as a complication of that.
0: And it's different bacteria necessarily, or is it all the same kind of bacteria we see uh, that you're
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. We see common bacteria and it's usually bacteria that live on the skin, so staph aureus mm-hmm. and streptococci. But um if bacteria get mixed into the uh, to the mixture that they're injecting, which includes gram negatives like E. coli and other things, then they'll also have that type of infection as well. The other the other problem with it, why besides just you know, the penetration of a dirty needle into the skin, releasing bacteria. The, the addict also has other health problems associated with their addiction. So uh, nutrition's not on top of their list, right? I mean, it, their focus is on getting their next fix. So they have uh, nutritional problems that um, depress their immune status. And then the opioids themselves have uh, immunosuppression. So they depress the immune system. So that combination with um, a less than sterile needle, injection of bacteria, uh, nutritional status, which makes them uh, more uh, immunosuppressed, uh, really is a kind of a perfect storm. in yeah, why we're seeing this. Like it. Sounds mm-hmm. like it.
0: Makes a very vulnerable patient. I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Timothy Indy, professor and chair for microbiology and immunology at Upstate. Well, I'd like to ask you about um, you and your wife have uh, shared uh, that you've seen the effects of opioid abuse up close with your son. So I wanted to see if you can share that with our listeners.
2: Sure. Thank you, Amber, for asking that. Uh, So like a lot of families um, in our area, we've been touched by uh, the opioid epidemic by having uh, one of our own family members, uh, our son, who um, over a process of a number of years developed a fairly um, out-of-control heroin addiction um, and his uh, his story um, really uh, taught us a lot about uh, addiction and recovery. And um, like a lot of families, uh, we went through um, it was a lot of personal pain uh, with him. Uh, he,
0: s- he started using, um, misusing drugs in high school.
2: In high school, you know, which led to a serious heroin addiction by the age of twenty four, and um, he had um, uh, failed two rehab programs. Try to go cold turkey by himself three times without success. Um, He actually uh, OD'd twice, um, was recovered by uh, naloxone in the emergency room. And um, we brought him home, um, and he was up to, uh, I think, a 200-day heroin addiction. Went from 175 pounds to 140. And uh, watching him, uh, we realized that he was slowly dying. And uh, we reached a critical point where I really honestly, we both felt, my wife and I felt like he would would die in the next couple of weeks. Uh, We got him to a recovery specialist that was recommended to us, Tom Murphy, um, who said we have to get him into a program. And at that point in time, uh, my son was um, just exhausted. You know, the the world of an addict is a very constricted world, which involves getting up in the morning and thinking about what what your next fix is, and then what your next fix is, and then what your next fix is. And he and,
0: wanted to get off of drugs though. Right? Yeah,
2: every addict wants to get off drugs. And I think that's the premise. It's just how to do that and, and what kind of um a program resonates with each and every individual's recovery is different. Uh, for my son, uh he was um we sent him um to uh Sierra Tucson rehab facility for a detox and a thirty day program. And then uh he was then um Uh, recommended and accepted going into a long-term recovery in uh, BRC, which is bringing real change in Austin, Texas. And the program uh, was a a 12-step program that was uh, highly structured um, with um, a very strong peer recovery group, um, which had a 90-day program and then a step-down program uh, leading to sober living, life coaches, and the program lasts for a year. So we... um, uh, we found a program that worked for my son. The transformation to him was just dramatic. Um, in his words, he, he says he's finally found peace and serenity, and he's been sober now for almost 20 months. <clears throat> and um, he, in, in return, is is helping others in recovery. He is uh, a sponsor for three others and, and helping hospitals develop recovery programs and has a full-time job in Austin, Austin Texas. Um, so we... We didn't, uh, our insurance, like a lot of families, did not pay for any of this. So, you know, fortunately, we had the funds to support my son. And uh, what he taught me were, was a couple of very important lessons about um, recovering addiction. Um, the first is that um, despite what a lot of programs tell you, rock bottom uh, means death, and hitting rock bottom is not an acceptable choice for, for addicts. Number two is that um, it, it is, of course, their choice to go into recovery programs, but families are, are often excluded from their process. This was unlike the program we sent we sent him to Austin, which actually integrated us into weekly phone calls, keeping us up to date, making us a part of his recovery and healing process, which I think is incredibly important. And and thirdly, that. Um, when you reach a state of recovery, he, he came up uh, over the Christmas holidays, and, and everyone who saw him and knew him realized he finally found some peace and healing. And that inspired two others of his uh, uh, friends who are uh, also dealing with addiction to go into a recovery program, in fact, the same one. And um, as my wife and I learn these lessons from our son and, and, and try to to reach out and help others, uh, we realized that, um, you know, there are a lot of kids out there who, who don't have the money or the funds to get into a, to the recovery program. So we work with Tom Murphy and we sent, um, he recommended a person who was ready for recovery and we personally financed this person to go into BRC in Austin where that uh, person has, has done extremely well. And we said, well, that, um, that was important. Let, let's do another one. And so we sent another uh, friend down there and another colleague uh, who'd identified a, a person in need, and we financed that person. And so far, there have been um, uh, six people from Syracuse that are going through this program. And, and um, together with a, a board we established, we, uh, we established a charity um, so that we can accept donations uh, through a 501 with the community foundation um, to be able to support uh, more Young adults with addiction to go into long term recovery programs.
0: Well, let's share uh, what that is. Um, the web address for people who are interested in learning more wwwroad the number two recoverycny.com. Road, R O A D, to the number two recoverycny.com. Yes. So. Well, thank you so much for being willing to share your story. Thank you for inviting me. The information, we appreciate it. My guest has been Dr. Timothy Indy, professor and chair of Upstate's Department of Microbiology and Immunology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show Health Link on Air. Next up, the importance of vitamin A on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Vitamin A deficiency is the leading cause of preventable blindness in children, and it increases the risk of disease and death from severe infections. Upstate Medical University has a pediatric gastroenterologist who's researched this issue, which affects mostly poor nations. Here with me today is Amr Imdad, an assistant professor of pediatrics specializing in gastroenterology. Welcome, Dr. Imdad.
3: Thank you for, for having you. me.
0: So you've clearly done a lot of research on vitamin A supplementation and its role in keeping children healthy. Um, Just what does vitamin A do for our body? Mm
3: -hmm. So vitamin A is, uh, is an essential micronutrient. So two key words here. One is the micronutrient, which means that these nutrient elements are required in smaller amounts compared to macronutrients, for example, carbohydrates, fats, or proteins that we typically eat. An essential micronutrient is a micronutrient that our body cannot synthesize from the raw material. So it means that vitamin A is, uh, is, an, is a micronutrient that needs to be taken from external sources. And it does multiple functions in our body, including um, vision. It helps with the respiratory system and gastrointestinal systems.
0: So you said it cannot synthesize from a raw uh, does that mean we can't get it from food or we can? Or
3: So typically our bodies uh, can make certain, uh, for example, amino acids. Uh, it can also make certain biological components that are active in our body and it just needs the raw material for it. Uh, however, in certain um, micronutrients, you actually have to take it from the food sources. Uh, so, vitamin A actually needs to be taken externally, either from the plant source or the animal source uh, per se, and our own body cannot. So, if we don't eat vitamin A, our own body cannot synthesize it.
0: Okay. So, we can't make it on our own. We, it's essential that we eat it yep. or whatever. Now, um is it more uh, important for children than adults or, or not? It,
3: it's important for both children and uh, adults, but the key thing in children is that they are growing and they are more prone to having complications if they have vitamin A deficiency. So the most critical part is in the vision. So what vitamin A does, it helps regenerate the epithelial surfaces in the body. So where are the epithelial surfaces? So um, in our eyes, the retina is one of the epithelium. In our respiratory tract, we have an epithelial surface. In our gastrointestinal tract, uh, we have an epithelial surface. Similarly in the reproductive tract. so. Um, Vitamin A helps regenerate these linings, internal linings. Now, the growing kids, if they are vitamin A deficient, then they will be at a higher risk of getting, say, respiratory infection, uh, gastrointestinal infection, and the worst is really uh, loss of vision. So it is the most common uh, cause of night blindness um, in children around the globe.
0: Is it reversible? I mean, night blindness? or
3: It, it depends. It depends uh, when uh, we picked up the vitamin A deficiency. So what it does, for example, in vision, um, it causes um, dryness of the eyes and um, it really, the, the white part of white part of our eye, the conjunctiva, um, can become keratinized, so it becomes thick, and then in the advanced cases, the cornea, which is the frontal part of our eye, uh, can also be keratinized or thickened, so when the cornea is affected, then it's typically irreversible, but if we catch it sooner and supplement the kids with vitamin A, then it's reversible.
0: Well, what I wanted to ask is um, what sorts of signs and symptoms would there be for a parent? Like, how would you know that your child is deficient in this? Indeed. So again, starting
3: um, with the vision. So you can have dry eyes with this, um, especially sometimes um, you see the white spots uh, or whitish grayish color spots uh, in the conjunctiva of the eye. Um, similarly, you could have um, thickening of the skin. Skin also has an epithelial surface, so vitamin A plays an important uh, part in maintaining uh, the skin layer of our body. Then again, they will have uh, increased um, infections, um, both respiratory infections and gastrointestinal infections. And in older um, adults, it can also contribute to reproductive, it can affect the reproductive and cause infertility in in adults.
0: Well. Uh is th- those signs and symptoms that you mentioned, I just wonder at what point um, you would think, oh, it's got to be vitamin A deficiency, because those things might lead you down the path of some other diagnosis first, right? In-
3: indeed, indeed. And uh, it really uh, depends uh, the scenario. And, you know, as a physicians, when we make assessments, uh, if somebody comes with, uh, say, a gastrointestinal infection is having diarrhea, we think about uh, multiple other things. But if I am working in a developing country. Um, then at least one of the things that we think about is that this could be due to malnutrition. So uh, those kids, um, they have multiple infection back to back, and that uh, not only make them sick in that acute setting, but also lead to um, bunch of losses of the nutrition, and and they kind of go in a cycle where they get sick and they lose micronutrients and they're not able to eat, so they become deficient over time. So uh, the vitamin A deficiency is not that common in United States or in other developed countries, but in developing countries is very common, and we are kind of more suspicious. Say, for example, if there is a refugee patient who comes to us, then we'll be much more suspicious with these symptoms compared to a child who was born and raised here in the United States?
0: Interesting. Okay. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with pediatric gastroenterologist, Dr. Amr M. Dad. Um, can babies and children get adequate levels of vitamin E by eating certain foods? And if so, which certain foods are they eating? High with vitamin A.
3: Absolutely. So vitamin A is available um, both from the plant source and the animal source. So the plant source um, have something called inactive vitamin A. Um, beta carotene is one of the most famous type of subtype of vitamin A. When you it's, say beta carotene, I think of carrots. Is yeah, that- It's. Uh, Kind of, so carrots is actually a very good source of vitamin A. Uh, then the green leafy vegetables like spinach, um, yellow vegetables like pumpkin, squash, um, and then non starchy fruits like mangoes, papaya, and apricots have a lot of vitamin A in it. Now the animal source on the other hand has more active form of vitamin A. Um, and so uh, the sources include liver, liver fish oil, egg yolk, whole milk, dairy products and human milk. Um so if if there is a choice between plant and animal based the uh, vitamin A from animal source is much more active compared to plant source because the one that is taken from the plant needs to be converted to active form to uh, be available to the body.
0: Um what about supplements is it okay to just is there a vitamin A that you can take? Indeed, there is a synthetic vitamin A supplementation
3: available, um, again, in developed countries when um, there is food available otherwise, and you're eating about two and a half caps, cup of fruits and vegetable kind of every day. You really don't need uh, supplementation, but in developing country, um, World Health Organization recommends uh, vitamin A supplementation. It actually is given every six months and actually the study that we conducted is the basis for WHO recommendations. Uh, WHO asked us um, uh, in the past to uh, prepare the data that is available uh, and when our study was was published, um, it, it served as a policy document for it and WHO issued its um, recommendation based on that. Uh, now it is supported by the uh, World Bank, uh, UNICEF, and WHO, um, and the kids in developing countries uh, get a big dose of vitamin A every six
0: months. So uh, tell me about your research. You looked at several studies, Mm -hmm. um, children from six months to five years of age, and then you compared the outcomes for those who got vitamin A supplements and those who didn't, right?
3: Indeed. So we uh, conducted um, uh, something called meta-analysis, which what it does is it mathematically combines the different studies. So Uh, we had about 47 studies, um, published mainly from low- and uh, middle-income countries, um, and it included about 1 million to Mm 223,856 children, so really huge uh, sample size. Um, And the studies that were conducted, about 30 were conducted in Asia, uh, 8 in Africa, 7 in Latin America, and there are two studies from Australia as well. And what uh, the combined data from these studies showed that the kids who were 6 to 59 months of age um, and were supplemented with vitamin A, um, it reduces their mortality by 12% compared to the kids who did not receive vitamin A. And This is um, a very significant effect for uh, as simple of an intervention as uh, a vitamin A capsule, which costs less than two cents. Um, now, to
0: reduce the death rate by depth, 12%? Yeah, by
3: wow. 12%. So it is actually considered one of the most effective and most cost-effective intervention in developing country to save children, um, and as I said earlier, uh, we were very lucky to have our study uh, adopted by WHO, and and uh, we feel very honored to ha- you know provide the basis for their recommendations. And our study was picked up by multiple uh, policymakers, and they um, now recommend and. Uh, Um, to supplement the kids with vitamin A um, so that, uh, you know, we can prevent and we can save lives uh, with this. Um, Now, there has been discussion on how exactly it works. So, vitamin A, what it does is it prevents the the diarrhea-associated illness and death. So, diarrhea is one of the leading causes of death in developing countries, and giving vitamin A actually helps prevent the illness. Uh, so the incidence of illness and not only when the kids get sick, they'd also prevents the severity of illness as well. So it's they're less likely to die from diarrhea if they have good vitamin A levels in their bodies. Uh, similarly, vitamin A also helps with measles. Measles is one of the major killer in developing countries. So um, the kids who have adequate vitamin A and they get measles, they're less likely to have complications compared to the kid who was vitamin A deficient and had measles on top of it. And it could be deadly in those cases. So our data uh, from our study showed Significant effect not only for all cause mortality, meaning um, any cause of death, but also the deaths due to diarrhea and measles, and and this shows a very convincing evidence that um, this intervention is biologically plausible and can do and can save lives in in uh, developing countries.
0: Well, what is being looked at in terms of getting vitamin A to the right populations that need it? I mean, how do you do that? Uh,
3: indeed, so. Um, Right now, the policy is to supplement kids with synthetic vitamin A supplementation, which could be given by capsules or in liquid form. Um, But this is really not the long-term solution. The long-term solution um, is to increase the availability of food, both the plant-based source and the animal-based source. Uh, But obviously, that's going to... Take time, and there is a lot of things involved in that, including political commitment and financial situation of the population. Um, another thing that is being looked at is the fortification of food. So, the most staple food um, that is eaten in different parts of the world, uh, so to fortify the, that food um, with vitamin A. Another is an agricultural uh, approach where uh, certain foods are modified to have increased content of vitamin A. In it. And actually, Cornell here is doing a lot of work around that, and they are trying to grow different um, um, agriculture products that have more vitamin A in it. And that probably is the long-term solution, that the bioavailability is higher in different foods available in, in developing countries.
0: Because in America, we see um, foods that are, you know, calcium-fortified. Mm-hmm. Indeed,
3: or folic acid fortification. Foli- right. is is, uh, is a very well-known intervention that prevented the neural tube defects.
0: So how did you get involved in studying vitamin A?
3: Yeah, so it's a, a kind of long story. I um, just graduated from medical school, and I was looking for a job, and um, I was actually studying for my USMLEs to come to the United States for training in pediatrics. So um, I happened to work with um, Dr. Zufkar Ahmed Butta. He's a well-known nutritionist and has done a lot of work uh, for kids in developing countries. So he was asked uh, to uh, conduct this study for WHO, and he gave me the task to... For uh, World Health Organization. For World Health Organization, that is correct. And we had team members from the Oxford University. University in, in England and also uh, one of the students from John, Ho- John Hopkins uh, worked with us. So it was a combined team effort um, and um, it took us about one and a half year to complete this study and uh, it was first published back in 2010 and then we have uh, up- updated the data very recently and the most recent um, manuscript were published in 2017.
0: Interesting. Wow. And then you've you've stuck with working on this. Indeed, mm-hmm. and we
3: um, have. Um work for WHO uh, on vitamin A and also uh, certain other micronutrients as well. My personal interest is in global health and uh, um, I'm very much interested in micronutrient supplementation in children. Um, so we have um, looked at vitamin A. We also looked at zinc supplementation, iron supplementation. Um, we also looked at calcium supplementation in, in mothers uh, to help prevent the complications of pregnancy. and. We we're very lucky to, uh, that some of our work has uh, been taken up uh, by WHO for their policy making and it makes me really uh, honored and humble that our work uh, is ultimately being used for policy making
0: yeah it's neat that that's happening here uh, here in Syracuse. so Indeed. well thank you so much for the information uh, my guest has been dr Amr m dad a pediatric gastroenterologist at upstate i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: The scourge of drugs in our communities is by now well-documented. Poets, however, can put faces to statistics, can make us stop, listen, think. Catherine Howe Mahan, who is a professor of writing at Ithaca College, has a full-length book coming out soon called Selected Poems. But her poem, Magic, depicts a mother's unending quest to restore her daughter's life. Magic. If I hum her name a hundred times, can I take my daughter back to when she touched starfish in a pool and said, I love it here, Mama? If I write the date of the day she was born backwards and forwards in a salty wave, can I keep her talking to me, saying how she still wants to hold my hand? If I hide my grief in a little song and whisper its hard words low and deep into a bottle tossed into the sea, can I bewitch, bewilder, banish heroine's history? Bridget Meads is also from Ithaca of New York, and she describes an unexpected encounter in her poem titled Exit at Triphammer. The meeting is not personal, and yet it is highly emotional. Exit at Triphammer. You were not easy to love. Sprawled off the off-ramp dirt. March rain from above, darkening your stained shirt. I parked the car and walked back, calling help. Is he alert? Needle in arm, arm with tracks. The red and orange lights encroaching. You are what the world lacks. The sky was full of birds approaching. You will not see their flight, nor rain ceasing, the light reproaching. I paused looked left, then right. The delay in my day was slight.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a herniated disc treatment called microdiscectomy. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word: HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.